0: Hello and welcome to episode number 31 of Earth Repair Radio. Because permaculture is not just a gardening technique, and permaculture is not just a design system, right? Permaculture, at this point, represents a paradigm enough water was soaking into the ground through the water harvesting structures that it actually built the subsurface water table it's literally reverse migration Mm -hmm. people that fled their villages because of lack of water lack of water resources to go work low-wage jobs Mm -hmm. in india's mega cities live in slums oftentimes Mm -hmm. People, Those people are able to actually come back to their villages and become prosperous farmers. They have changed the hydrology of the entire region. Well, the magnitude of what they've done is the magnitude that we need to be doing stuff at. Hello, and I'm your host, Andrew Millison. And in this episode, we're doing something a bit different because I'm actually the person being interviewed. I was contacted by a guy named Andrew Toth who wanted an interview, so we turned it into this episode where I give the history of how I ended up teaching permaculture in a major state university, and how my work in India has formed my perspective about the scale that we need to be working at to right the relationship between humans and nature. So please enjoy.
1: Andrew Millison, I'm Andrew Toth. Thanks for agreeing to do this with me. I'll just give a little background as to how we have come to do this here. I, I went to university in Germany at the university, technical university in Hamburg and one of my professors, Ralph Otterpol, he's very interested in permaculture and everything that goes along with it. Um, he wrote a book called Neues Dorf, which means new towns in English. And that's about uh, kind of agrarian based intentional type communities located inside or near a city that provides a, a sort of um, urban buffer and also a, a food source for, for cities. Uh, it's a little bit of a mixture of intentional communities, equal villages and, and similar things, but with a agrarian focus, let's say. And that incorporates a lot of, a lot of topics, whether it's holistic plant grazing or bio-intensive gardening or permaculture. And I know that when I was in school, uh, with Ralph some eight years ago. He was showing permaculture videos centered on amazing uh, restoration projects in India. And that's how I think he came across your name, Andrew. And he said, hey, you should reach out to this guy, Andrew Millicent, and see if you can talk to him because he's got some incredible content online. So uh, we basically cold emailed you and you said, yeah, let's talk. We had one conversation and here we are. So thanks for, you know, (laughs) coming down this path with us on sort of a a unknowing what we're doing here. Um,
0: Well, thank, thank you. And, and I mean, I always just cold email people as well when I want to talk to them, uh, when I'm interested in what they're doing. And it's great that we have this way that we can just reach out and have conversations with interesting people all over the world so thank you for reaching out
1: absolutely so when we talked i know you have a podcast earth repair radio and i plan to also post this onto our own site gardenringcities.com so let's assume that people listening may or may not know who you are so i kind of want to go into it with an open mind um, zero background for the folks listening. Can you tell us who you are, where you are, and why, you know, what, well, basically, what's your involvement in the permaculture movement?
0: Yeah. So my name's Andrew Millison, and I am located in Corvallis, Oregon, in the United States. And right now, I am an instructor at Oregon State University is my main title in life. And I teach permaculture, uh, teach permaculture. Permaculture, a, a number of different permaculture courses, and I mostly teach online courses at this point. I've been creating this whole p- permaculture online program for 10 years now uh, in Oregon at the university here in Corvallis. So I started my permaculture journey fairly young. Um, I grew up in the city of Philadelphia. And I ended up leaving the East Coast and ending up in Arizona. And I went to Prescott College there. And I was actually drawn to permaculture, ecological design, sustainable living, uh, because in the early '90s I had this realization that basically the crap was hitting the fan ecologically, socially, and you know here we are actually. 30 years later, right? And, you know, I could say a lot of those <laughs> predictions have borne out fairly accurately.
1: The crap has hit the fan now.
0: <laughs> yeah, the crap has is hitting the fan. But 30 mm. years ago, this was all apparent to young Andy Millicent uh, as a, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old. And, um, and so uh, in the early 90s, I realized that civilization was going to collapse. And I had no idea how to live. I had no idea how to feed myself or anything like that. And so I started investigating ways that people could actually survive. And I I found the Earthships. The first exposure I had, I was in Taos, New Mexico, um, traveling around. I picked up this Earthship book and I was like, Oh my God! Like this is it? All I need is one of these earthships, and I have this self-contained pod, and I can just live in that, no matter what happens in the world around me, right? And so, um, so I got really interested in ecological design, and I went to Prescott College after you know I had dropped out of college on the East Coast, and I went back to school, uh, and they had a permaculture class. And I had I'd never heard of permaculture. And so I took a, a, a permaculture class in 1996, my permaculture design course. And suddenly I was like, whoa, plants, right? And I was introduced to the concept that plants are these ama- that you can do artwork and collaborative living artwork with plants. That was what mm-hmm. enticed me. I was like, wow, you know, I, I was, I was, I was a graffiti writer in my early days and I was always really into the idea of changing your surroundings on a large scale, you know, putting up this big, beautiful graffiti piece and changing your environment. And so, you know, that's kind of like public art. I was into public art, but when I realized that with plants, you could actually create collaborative living public art, I got really excited. So I took permaculture and then I just took all sorts of ecology and you know, natural history classes and gardening. And I studied because Prescott College is this really alternative liberal arts school with this great assemblage of um, different courses that would support a permaculture education. I took advanced permaculture as well. And um, then I went and I actually got my master's degree there studying heirloom fruit trees of Arizona, working on a project that Gary Nabhan had started. Um, called the Arizona Heirloom Fruit and Nut Registry, where I traveled around to all these different orchards and um, old heirloom abandoned orchards throughout the state of Arizona. So all these like remote canyons and places where there's these old homesteads. And I really got a sense of what nature and food forests and cultivated landscapes that have gone wild look like and finding old plants and seeing what happens when you abandon cultivated landscapes for, you know, 50 to 60, 70 years. And, and it was really very, very fascinating. We went, I went up with Gary Nabhan to, um, do a whole, uh, fruit tree, heirloom fruit tree restoration project up on the Hopi reservation, traveling around getting cuttings of all these traditional, um, peach and apricot and almond varieties that were remnants of the the Spaniards and the missions um, from you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it's really, really fascinating. So I got really into fruit trees because I, I wanted to start a nursery. I wanted to start an heirloom fruit tree nursery that was uh, drought adapted fruit trees for Arizona and for arid climates. And that was my vision at that point what I wanted to do with my life. So um, I ended up getting a job and working in Arcisanti and managing the agriculture area there for a couple of years. And then I, and <clears throat> I was supporting myself throughout by doing landscaping, by building things out of stone and, and, um, building hardscapes, water harvesting structures. And I, you know, I worked for someone else for a while and then I started my own business and that was kind of like my on the side thing because I was going to do this nursery. But I always say this to people. I say to students, I say, be careful what you get good at because I got really good at building things out of rock. Right. And Arizona is just a big pile of rocks. Absolutely. Yeah. It was great fun. Yeah. And so yeah, just building stairways and terraces and drainages and, you know, check dams and like doing lots of water harvesting work. And so, um, so I finished my master's degree uh, in the heirloom fruit trees, but then I just had so much work building things out of stone. I ended up getting this job. Uh, I spent two and a half years building um, the orchards and vineyards for Maynard Keenan, the lead singer of Tool. Right. I actually just watched him get interviewed on Joe Rogan oh, really? podcast yesterday. Yeah. And he was talking all about the project. He was talking all no about kidding. his vineyards and everything. I was like, Whoa, he's still at it. I mean, and it's been, you know, that was, you know, like fifteen years ago at this point um for me. So uh so I ended up not ever starting an heirloom fruit tree nursery, but yeah. I ended up starting a landscape company. And then the gray water laws came around. Gray water was legalized, and so I specialized in gray water systems and rainwater harvesting. And it was a big thing, you know. I was in Prescott, and um, it was really uh, it was a lot of fun. And I did a lot of really great projects. And then I just got kind of tired of um, of the hustle of running a landscape business because it was kind of like, okay, if you're going to grow, you need to split up into two crews, mm-hmm. right? And if you were doing two crews and you had two projects going on, then, then I never, I never had time to build anything anymore. Suddenly I was just driving around between my two projects, making sure that I had the next jobs lined up and making sure that everybody had the right supplies and you know, all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is not that fun anymore, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So then I ended up, Uh, taking a job with one of my former mentors, T. Barnabas Kane, uh, who had a landscape architect office in Prescott. And so I started working as landscape architecture office. And I worked there for a couple of years uh, and learned how to really do drawings and designs in a more conventional um, manner. You know, we worked with Uh, Northern Arizona University work the city of Prescott we worked with all different homeowners and businesses and I learned how to do AutoCAD and learn how to really make drawings official looking drawings that everybody could understand and work with engineers and all that that was really fascinating but then again um, I guess I have I always have this haunting this haunting -er doomerish you know voice in my head that's like this place is going down. There's no water. It's going to burn up, Arizona. You know, the <laughs> militias are starting. It's going to be a race war. You know, and like all the all the craziness of what you think of as the dystopian future, Arizona. Um, and so, I uh, I was I was I was having a uh, another child. So I had a kid when I was 23, and then I was 30 four and i was having another kid and so i was like wow you know this is kind of a time to restart and my wife and i were like we want to go where there's actually water and soil and her mother lived up here in oregon so we came up and i had a lot of friends and moved up here so we came up and we moved to oregon in 2008 my son was born in 2007 um And I ended up, uh, since I've been here, just sort of by fate and chance and really good luck, I ended up uh, coming to Corvallis at the same time that there was a permaculture student group forming at OSU. And it was this one woman, Sarah LaRock, who was like just this super go-getter woman who decided that there was going to be a permaculture class at OSU. Mm -hmm. And she saw me give a talk and she said, and you're going to be the teacher. (laughs) And she lobbied the horticulture department, and she got signatures of students that would take the class. And there was a wonderful department head for the horticulture department, Anita Azarenko at the time, who was an organic farmer herself. And she said, cool, yeah, let's do a permaculture class. And I did the first permaculture class at OSU, and it went really well. And then...
1: And that was in 2008 as well, or a little bit later? I guess
0: that was the spring of 2009.
1: And did... Did you find that people in the department knew what permaculture was in the department of horticulture?
0: People knew the word permaculture. Although a lot of people had, you know, uh, permaculture is seen as, as somewhat of a hippie thing, right? So a lot of people maybe didn't have the greatest opinion of permaculture. However, they knew because it's Oregon, right? Because Toby Hemingway, who passed away some years ago, he, had already introduced permaculture into the uh, university system at Portland State University. And he would wrote this excellent book, Gaia's Garden, which Mm -hmm. is actually, I heard, still the the biggest-selling permaculture book of all time. Right, And so Toby Hemingway had already, Gaia's Garden had already gotten in there, and gardeners were already taking up permaculture uh, practices, Jude Hobbs. She was doing stuff at University of Oregon, and she was working with OSU, doing a Hedro publication. And so there had already been quite a legacy of permaculture people in Oregon for a long time who had already made really great leaps and bounds and put put out some great work. So permaculture, the idea had already infused somewhat, although a lot of people just didn't quite know exactly what it was.
1: Sure. But they knew the word but there were enough people interested in taking the course to get it off the ground.
0: Well, yeah. Cause the students knew right. permaculture, right? Young people knew permaculture. Yeah.
1: Did you have the impression they had red guys garden or Bill Mollison's work or, you know, they just picked it up along the way or how did, how did students hear about it before they heard it from you?
0: <clears throat> well, permaculture, because permaculture is not just a gardening technique. And permaculture is not just a design system, right? Permaculture at this point represents a paradigm. You know, it represents a paradigm of sustainable, harmonious living. And so the word permaculture and the various, the visions of that paradigm have seeped very far into books and into fantasy and into activism and into gardening clubs and into political discussions and you know so permaculture is like out there as this concept, mm-hmm. this archetypal, you know, future, this like iconic future of harmonious living. Mm-hmm. So if people just have heard of it okay. through all different channels. Yeah.
1: And your first course, 2009, was in person, I assume?
0: Yeah, so my in-person course in 2009, it went really well. And then um, the uh, Student Sustainability Initiative, um, which was a well-funded student group at OSU, they uh, I asked them, they had some extra money, so they funded my next in-person course. Um, and then I was approached, well, t- again, through Toby Hemingway, Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of, I I owe a lot to Toby Hemingway. He was approached by the uh, Oregon department of Wait, Was it Oregon department of housing and human services? Right. Which is the state agency that builds low income housing in Oregon. So he was approached by them because they heard of permaculture. This one woman, uh, one of the workers, the people, one of the kind of main people in this department was, uh, actually at a festival where Jude Hobbs gave a presentation on permaculture on the main stage. They brought Jude Hobbs up and she did this, this, like she held up these big signs like permaculture, what is it? You know, and to this whole crowd at this reggae festival at Cougar Mountain, which is, uh, another great permaculture site. Like, uh, a, Eugene.
1: like a powerpoint presentation at a, at a radio no festival. no it wasn't powerpoint it was like <laughs> giant placards gotcha right?
0: it was like food water people getting together i don't know what she did but anyway <laughs> this one woman so, so so this woman sitting there this woman rainy guvain was sitting there in the in the crowd and she was like, talking us, like oh what's perculture like oh permaculture this and she's like whoa we need that we need that in our in our low-income housing for the state of Oregon, she's like, why aren't we doing permaculture? And so they contact. They were like, where's the official? You know, who, who's who's the person to go to? So they went to Toby Hemingway, mm-hmm. who was working at PSU. And Toby, at that time, had actually moved out of the state. He was moving to Northern California. He moved to Sebastopol. And so he said, and I was already at OSU. And he said, hey Andrew. Um, These you know talk to these people, and because I was at OSU, and so it was with you know the state. I'm I'm part of the state. It was like a no bid contract. They could just you know just do it right through OSU, and so so they said we want to have a conference. We want to have a permaculture and ecological housing conference for our workers and for our different contractors and you know social workers and developers, and so it was well funded they funded me for a whole year to do that, to throw the conference and then to build an online course. So the conference was like the first part of the course. And then we had an online course as part of, you know, for the state workers. And so I worked, so basically we built the online course, but we we also built the online course for eCampus at the same time. It's perfect for the extended campus. So the conference was cool and we had Mark Lakeman and Tom Ward and, Leonard Barrett and Jude Hobbs and Toby Hemingway and all the like Oregon elder permaculture people. We took them on tours. We had buses. We took them to all of the city repair projects and they went to dignity village, um, which is like the houseless, you know, encampment that they turned into a, a ecological village. And we had it in this big hotel by the airport and it was really, really great. And, and a lot of the people took the course and then Marisha Auerbach and I, we went and visited every one of those students that were working on the design project. We visited them all over the state Mm -hmm. at their different social agencies where they were doing permaculture projects on their, you know, recovery house or their veterans home or whatever it was that they were um, using for their projects. And it was really great. And that was, that was the seed of the online permaculture program at osu
1: talk about symbiosis
0: you know uh, synchronicity has been my dear friend (laughs) and um every plan that i've ever had has not been what's actually happened to me what i love about yeah
1: (laughs) what i love about your path is you talk about, I was a graffiti writer. I loved art. I liked plants. I put that together. I wanted to be an arborist. I got into fruit trees and I got a contract that I did this and that. And the other thing, it seems like a very natural path. And like you say, it probably wasn't planned, but it was kind of, it sounds to me like you're listening to what you like and taking what you can do. And then that, that brought you to where you are, which is pretty yeah, awesome.
0: And, and I always like Like, I feel like I make a plan just to keep my own mind busy, but the actual thing that's going to happen is coming from a direction that I can't foresee. Right. That's been the pattern of my life. Yeah. That's the same here. (laughs) Okay. So that's that's for everybody. I don't know.
1: That's a few years have gone by. You did a, is it called a massive online course?
0: Is that right? Yeah. So then, so, okay. So, so. The permaculture program, like they realize it's popular. The online classes are popular. And they realize they they had this thing in eCampus, like, wow, permaculture sells itself. They realize they don't have to do a whole lot of advertising. I do a lot of advertising. Sure. Right. I mean, but I have networks of friends and colleagues and people. And if you have a good program out there, then people will be attracted to it. So we, you know, we developed a track record. And then they put out a, uh, request for pr- proposals to create a massive open online course. Um, and so we, I put out a, uh, I said, Hey, let's do an intro to permaculture, massive open online course. And again, they were like, well, permaculture sells itself. Sure. Let's do it. They thought it was perfect. And so I worked with them, uh, with the e-campus and, and open Oregon state, and they put they threw a ton of resources at it because at the time the trend was to create massive open, massive free classes, free education. That was Mm -hmm. like the trend. And they wanted to keep up with the Joneses and the USC's and the, you know, everybody else was putting these massive open online classes. And so we, we created this class and um, we ran it four times over three years and we've had uh, we had over 45,000 people take the class That's awesome. from all over the world. We created this huge series of videos that are all still free there on YouTube.
1: Yeah.
0: Um using the lightboard, you know, this they call it the learning glass where it looks like you're drawing on the air. Right. Um and uh it was really good. The only reason why it's not still going is because it needed some major tech upgrades you know, time goes on and like the whole, just the whole security, like people's login information, like, you know, after a few years, the security system was no longer up to snuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For for instance, they had, so that we had to rebuild the whole login situation. And then some of the tech stuff was like, glitching and not working that great and you know operating systems change when you have 45,000 people you have every kind of operating system right. people testing it and so we needed some major upgrades it was going to cost a lot of money and the university I mean I appealed to them and all sort I tried to raise money independently and it just was like they just are out of the MOOC business basically mm-hmm. the university's just like we're just not making MOOCs anymore we just can't spend tens of thousands of dollars to re reconfigure the tech. And so we had to retire it in its course form. But um it's still all the content is still there available on the yeah. web, on YouTube. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. Well, free courses don't make money, right? I mean, I guess that's Yeah. that's a challenge.
0: I mean, it it was a time, you know, it was a time we had 45,000 people take the course. You know, we ran it that's over huge. a period of years. I mean, the window is open and we advertise it, you know, the first time we ran it, we had 16,000 people sign up the first time. Insane. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we're it's October 2020, almost November. Uh, We were just talking about this earlier. It seems we're at a a new peak of the pandemic. What does your academic life look like now? Uh, Are you teaching right now? Are you doing permaculture courses now?
0: Yeah. So um, mostly I do online classes and mostly I do online classes for non-credit students. Okay. Right. That's the majority, the bulk of what I do. And so our, actually our non-credit online program since the pandemic hit has blown up. Yeah. Right. We have, we have more students than we've ever had. I have more, I have a whole, I have like, Twelve other in culture instructors that work on the course with me. Um, all of them have full student loads right now. They're spread actually. All, we have people from all over the world at this point working on our working as instructors in our courses. And um, yeah, we're we're totally maxed out. Uh, my in person course that went online. So I usually do an in person course in fall. I'm I'm having like optional meetings with some of the students if they want to, and we're just going and doing sites outside right now right. which is really fun but uh, the university is 90% online basically uh, hiring freeze I can't hire anybody okay. right um, because of the financial situation the institution travel freeze there's like no no travel so um, my life personally hasn't changed that much because I mostly worked at home except for the fact that the rest of my family is also home <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah. I call it like, this is like the Millicent educational office complex
1: is our home. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's probably takes some more bandwidth, uh, mentally and, you know, internet, all the people on, are on, you know, virtual classes at home, I guess.
0: Yeah. But stuff is, stuff is like everything I'm involved in right now because my stuff is so online is just really, really expanding. Yeah, And I think the fact that we've been here for 10 years, we've already had, we've had, you know, we've got a new food forest course we just released with Marisha Auerbach. That's her baby, uh, permaculture food forests. And I have an advanced uh, permaculture design for climate resilience. Then we have the permaculture design course and everything is just blowing up.
1: Really. So if these are these are non-credit courses, meaning anybody listening theoretically could sign up and take them, correct? Yeah. That's great. That's right. So I've also seen a number of your videos on YouTube related to permaculture in India. How does that tie in? Well, I guess, first of all, can you introduce that topic, how you got to it? And then I'm going to ask how it ties into your OSU work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the international permaculture conference was, uh, is, is a, used to be every two years. Now it's every three years. Uh, Actually, with COVID, it seems like it's going to be four years between the two. But um, the International Permaculture Conferences are these amazing events, right? And after I went, I went to the first one in 2013 in Cuba, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I am going to all of these. It's spectacular to have permaculture people from all over the world meet up, and it's unequal as far as any other like professional experience I've ever had. And also just emotional, social. I mean, it's just a great group of people. So I went to the one in the UK in 2015. And then in 2017, it was in Hyderabad, India hosted by Narsana and Padma Coppola. Um, Bill Mollison came to India in the early eighties. Right. And uh, so there's a, legacy of permaculture there of course i mean permaculture in its in its modern named form i mean you could look at permaculture you could say india has been doing permaculture for millennia right, right? we just decided to call it permaculture because it's a word that you could use to describe a, uh, you know enduring system of human sustenance
1: right
0: so i went to the permaculture conference and um you know, you know, you know, four years in advance where the next permaculture conference is going to be because it's decided. You know that far So, so when I told my wife, "Yeah, I'm going to go to India for the permaculture conference," she was like, "We're all going to India. And we're <laughs> staying for as long as we possibly can, right?" So we figured out. So we had a lot. Of, we had years to figure out how to do this and plan and save up and right. um, all sorts of stuff. And so we we, we were able to go for two months. Perfect. So we went to the permaculture conference and then uh, um, a friend of mine, Rico Zook organized uh, a trip for us um, of a month long. And then we were on our own for a month. So I went and I, I got in touch with all these different people and I was like, I'm going to visit different projects there.
1: Sure.
0: <clears throat> so different permaculture projects. Um, and so we toured all around. We kept on the move for two months straight and went all over India and, Just, you know, we went to Rajasthan in the north, saw crazy water harvesting projects up there. And we went down, we were in the South, South India and Bangalore and um, Kerala, Karnataka. You know, it was really a a great and fabulous trip and it made a lot of connections there. Mm -hmm. So, um, came back here and um, I started making another course which is permaculture water management. And I started as making a rainwater harvesting course. I went to Tucson and filmed a bunch of stuff with Brad Lancaster. and um, But then I realized we needed to uh, expand it to be called permaculture water management. And the university um, decided to support me with that. So uh, I wanted to do the piece on earthworks, right? And there's nowhere in the world that there are More large scale, effective water harvesting earthworks than India.
1: Can you define what you mean by earthworks here?
0: So like water harvesting structures where you're shaping the earth, you're terraforming the earth in order Mm -hmm. to, uh, collect and soak or manage water throughout Mm -hmm. the landscape. Right. Right. And so, I had all these connections. I said, "Man, if we are going to really show the best water harvesting on the planet, it's it's India," and I know because I because I'd seen it. So it I took buttons. a long time and arranged this next trip. Um, I got funding from the university to get really nice camera equipment, nice, and I spent a long time learning how to use that camera equipment and spent a lot of time watching tutorials on youtube for how to you know how to do good photography and did a lot of practicing and stuff and and got this and this kit that i could fit on my back in a normal backpack it was very low key that you couldn't really tell that i had this whole extensive
1: extensive Film video
0: yeah this extensive video studio on my back um and again i went back with my wife and my son came and we did seven weeks and I traveled around um, and created the, actually I'm still creating it right now. Right. The India's water revolution video series yeah. on YouTube. Which, uh, right now I'm, I'm working on episode. I'm actually getting pretty close to being done with episode six right now. Um, but the first five episodes I've had something like now, like one over 1. 1.3 million views on these episodes that's incredible um,
1: they're like 10 minutes long ish is that right
0: yeah between between 10 and i think the longest one's like 14 minutes so if, if yeah. you want to
1: watch it just look at well you can just search for andrew millison on youtube or what are the other keywords
0: yeah. um, um if you could india's water revolution okay yeah Perfect. and i have a playlist you could watch all yeah basically you could watch the existing five episodes in like an hour right now yeah yeah
1: yeah, they're super accessible. I mean, what I think is awesome is that you did get good equipment, you learned how to use it, and you went there. And, and I mean, they're, they're fun to watch. They're super uh, approachable videos. And so even for someone who doesn't know um, much about permaculture, it's like this is just an amazing example of what humans can do. And then actually it's permaculture. Look at that. So it's very cool, very approachable.
0: Yeah, I've I've had a lot of good feedback and actually like I can look at the analytics of who's watching them and the majority of views are in India. You know, and I had thought like oh I'm making this for the American audience. I'm <laughs> showing people in the US the crazy stuff or you know like maybe not just the US, maybe Canada, North America, or people in Europe, but I'm showing like the you know people in this side of the world, what they're doing over there. Right. And it's actually been surprising that the biggest reaction has been from within India Mm -hmm. and people in India going, wow, I didn't even know, like I live in Maharashtra and I didn't even know this was going on here. Totally. So that's been the sort of surprising, interesting part of the viewership.
1: Can you talk about the Pani foundation?
0: I I only heard about it through your
1: videos and, and kind of subsequent research can you talk about what they're doing and why they're so successful?
0: Yeah, and I want to say, Andrew, that I just cold emailed the Pawnee Foundation, and that's <laughs> how I ended up there. So, <laughs> you know.
1: which that's a big deal. I mean, these people are are big names in both philanthropy and film, right?
0: Yeah, but they, um, well, I, I guess I have the the like the secret password is I'm a university instructor. <laughs> from the United States, you know, and that's kind of like the um all access pass to some degree. So um so I had arranged this trip to India and well, I want to take a step back and say um I wasn't sure where I was going to go at the end. Mm-hmm. Right? I saw some videos from the pani Foundation. Someone had shared it on social media and I saw these videos from the pani Foundation that were in Hindi, but I, you know, saw the subtitles and I was like, "Whoa, this mm-hmm. is crazy." You know, but also, um I ran into um, the waterman of India, Rajendra Singh, at the uh, Earth Repair Conference in Port Towns in Washington, who has done s- this massive water harvesting project up in Rajasthan, where they've done so much water harvesting in this whole watershed that they actually brought back this river. Mm-hmm. From being uh you know dry for like ten months out of the year, they brought it back to being a perennial river by restoring the groundwater over such a large area. so I was like, man I, you know I want to go to Rajasthan, but i was they weren't really getting back to me very well and then i got I got a again, I was cold emailed by mm-hmm. somebody mm-hmm. who by this uh organization called the Eco Factory Foundation mm-hmm. based in Pune. And this guy, Anand Chordia, who is the grandson of the Suhana Spice founders. So he's ah. the Suhana Spice family, which is like this huge uh, spice, multi-generational spice company that exports to like, you know, 20 or 30 countries. And, um, and he said, hey, I've, I'm a really big fan of your YouTube videos. Perfect. I want to start a permaculture institute. Will you come to to Pune? Yes. Right. Please. And I was like, and he didn't even know that I was coming to India. Right. He just cold called me like because he liked my YouTube videos. And, serendipitous, right? Yeah. And I was like, Whoa, you know, I'm gonna be in India. Um, and he's like, Well, you have to come to Pune. I was like, Well. That so, that was like okay. Well, I'm going to Maharashtra now. Now, I'm going to get in touch with Pani Foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the direction I'm going to go because I had this invitation and I ended up having an unbelievable time. The work that Anand and the Eco Factory Foundation are doing and Suhana Spices is doing is like that's just a whole nother story, yeah. but it is like this well resourced, you know, multi multinational spice corporation that is super into permaculture and it's very cool, but that's a whole other story for another time. So, um, so I got in touch with Pani foundation and they said, Hey, uh, you're going to be in Pune. Well, you should go down to Satara, which is, uh, the city of seven forts, you know, (laughs) south of Pune and you should meet with Dr. Avinash pole. How -hmm. long do you want? And so I arranged to spend, I spent like a day and a half or two days uh, with Dr. Avinash Pol driving around. Uh, and, you know, I didn't realize, but okay. So, well, I guess to take a step back, the Pani Foundation for people that don't know is um, it's a contest. They, they throw a contest. It's the It's a water harvesting contest to see which village can build the most amount of water harvesting structures in a 45-day period. Mm -hmm. And this contest was started in 2016, and it was started by this guy called Amir Khan. Mm -hmm. And Amir Khan is one of the most famous actors in Indian Bollywood. Right and around
1: the and yeah around the world. I mean, look up three idiots. or something. I mean,
0: yeah. huge, huge name. Right, yeah. He's he's like he's like he's like the Will Smith of <laughs> Bollywood. Right, right. I mean, he is. He's got so many movies. He's so good. His stuff is so good. Lagan. It was like the first one that he produced when his own. Lagan is like a. It's L A G A A N. If anybody wants to watch. You know, I've never seen a Bollywood movie. Watch Lagan. It's an amazing historical film. And he's the, he created it and he's the, the, um, the main actor in it.
1: Block out three hours.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Bollywood <laughs> film really And you're going to have some, you're going to have some like big giant group singing and dancing scenes, <laughs> you know, it's full on. But so anyways, Amir Khan, uh, you know, you have to watch the videos to get the whole story, you know, uh, I won't by the like, way. retell that, but. Pani
1: Foundation P A A N I if you're googling if you're watching or listening um, they have great videos and like you said they tell their story very well on their website too
0: yeah so um, <clears throat> so Amir Khan founded this organization in order to try to um, turn around India's water problems right maharashtra is a very air, a lot of maharashtra is a very arid state this is a large state with mm-hmm. many, I mean, India. Everything in India is just like there's so many more people. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's this is a large state with millions and tens and mil- I don't know, I don't know. There's like a hundred million people in Maharashtra, or something at least. I, I I have to look and see what the population is right now. But um, they have had over since twenty, I think fifteen or sixteen since the contest began. They had they they actually will not release how many villages have actually participated. Mm-hmm. But it's somewhere around like, you know, 8,000 villages, right? And I mean, they have changed the hydrology of the entire region with this contest.
1: Right. Yeah. Talk about moving mountains. I mean, that is huge.
0: It is huge. Millions of people involved. I mean, this they have numbers and statistics of like how many you know, liters of water. They have, you know, how many, they, they have like these graphics in some of their videos where they're like, you know, we saved enough tanker trucks of water to go from like, you know, the earth to the moon three times or something. Right. I mean, you know, it's just like this, the magnitude, well, the magnitude of what they've done is the magnitude that we need to be doing stuff at.
1: And what you say, you know, reshaping the hydrology, we're not talking about using a bunch of excavators and huge earth moving equipment. Am I right? I mean, we're talking about lots of people on the ground.
0: Yeah. I mean, they did there, there, there are earth moving equipment that are involved in some of it. Okay. If they did, if the villagers put in a certain amount of volunteer hours, Shramadan volunteerism, volunteer hours, then the government would then send like an excavator. Okay. Right. So it's sort of like part of the contest. If you cross a certain threshold, they'd send an excavator to, to help out, but we're talking about mass, uh, movement of thousands and thousands and thousands of people working by hand, right? All of this work by hand. I mean, you look at the footage, it's like women carrying, uh, you know, big like bowls of soil on their heads and, uh, men in there with these, Short-handled picks and shovels they use in India, you know, right. carving out these like miles and miles and miles of water harvesting structures. I mean, it's just phenomenal. You, you look on Google Earth, you can see the structures, you can see the stuff from space. And the result in a large, large scale. And the result is that uh, so so you know, there's the Indian monsoon. You have to understand the climate a little bit to understand the results. The Indian monsoon. Is such that uh, I don't, you know, there's nowhere else. There's not a lot of other places in the world that have this type of rainfall pattern, where it's really hot and dry for most of the year, and then the monsoons come, and it's just this, you know, short burst. It's like two to four months of super intense, massive rainfall, and then it's dry. So water collection and water storage capacity is is everything. So traditionally. Um, people would plant with the monsoons and if you didn't have groundwater storage or water for irrigation, you could only grow one crop, right? right. You grow your monsoon crop and that's what you got. And if the monsoon failed, well, you know what you were, you had a really bad time and you, if the monsoons fail and you're only growing one crop of year, then you may have to migrate away and leave migrate to the big cities in Maharashtra to Mumbai, right? Which Mm -hmm. is like 22 and a half million people, this, you know, biggest slums in the planet. Um, and so when with the water harvesting, what they did was they, they changed the nature of the hydrology where enough water was soaking into the ground through the water harvesting structures that it actually built the subsurface water table where, there was enough water in the ground to pull out for irrigation to grow a second crop during the dry season. Like, so when I was there, you know, both times I've been to India, it's been in December, January, which is a dry season, which is the time when you would be pulling out the water from your groundwater reservoirs and growing a winter crop. Mm -hmm. Um, So the difference for people from being able to grow one crop, versus two crops Mm -hmm. is it's massive it's like doubling your income it's like going from being marginal where one rain failure will lead to your demise to prosperity Mm -hmm. and i mean i visited houses you know i could only film so much and i was there at night and stuff and visiting houses but i might visit houses like yo you see this house like this is the, here, there's their old house next door. You see that house? Here's their new house. Like this is because they can grow two crops. Right. You know, like it's, it's literally bringing people, um, material prosperity. Right. Um, on a very basic level, like a really, like a nice place to live with and live in instead of a place that's falling apart to live in. Right. Um, and then it's bringing, um, food security. Mm -hmm. it's bringing social security because now people don't need to leave and go to the big city.
1: Is it also bringing bringing, people back from the city? Yeah. It's literally,
0: yeah, it's, it's literally reverse migration. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: People that fled their villages because of lack of water, lack of water resources to go work low wage jobs Mm -hmm. in India's mega cities, live in slums oftentimes. Mm -hmm. People, those people are able to actually come back to their villages and become prosperous farmers like their fathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers. So it's just
1: huge cascading effects for all of society at yeah. all levels, yeah. not yeah. on the land especially, but yeah. also impacting cities, right? It's less of a burden yeah. on a city. If like slums start to. You know, people are are going back from very low paying wages to back to the land. That that alleviates a lot of stress on a city too.
0: And and you know, COVID. Like, let's talk about COVID. What happened in India? Like, they they instituted a really abrupt lockdown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I don't know if people saw this on the news, but it was a it was a catastrophe completely for the low wage migrant workers who suddenly. People, I think when they locked down, I think the government thought like, oh, these people are going to stay. We'll feed them. People are going to stay in the slums and just stay in the cities and lock down there. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people just hit the road and started walking back to their villages. They're like, well, if if everything's crashing down, I'm going back to where like, I know my family has some fields and farms. Like I'm not going to go out here. And so... People, I mean, so many people got just caught in the sort of crossfire of the buses stopping and the train stopping and people walk. There's crazy, crazy stories about like, you know, people like 15 year old girl and her father biked like a thousand miles back to their home and just crazy stuff. But the people went back to their villages. Like that's where their, their actual heart security was, was right, back right. in their villages. And you know, a lot of those people. I, I saw some other some news stories. You know, like this guy being like, "I'm never leaving Bihar again." <laughs> like, you know, the state, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like people are like, "I'm not. I'm. I'm not going back to migrate to to work in the city. Like, I'm staying in my villages." Um. So you know, the, I mean, there. I I have no idea. I haven't been to India since COVID. But I mean, there could actually be like this sort of renaissance if this information is getting out there enough. There could be a rural renaissance where people suddenly are like, well, okay, we're back in our villages. What can we do? Oh, hey, look, look what the Pawnee Foundation did. You know, look what uh, akopala is doing in Hyderabad or look what, you know, all these people are doing. And so hopefully you could actually see a reverse migration and regeneration of the rural landscape.
1: So as you're talking about this, I can't help but, try to apply it to our own lives here we're here in oregon i'm in denver colorado i'm from kansas uh a small you know farming community atop the Ogallala aquifer which is depleting faster than it's uh coming back each year so you know we are facing and will continue to face water shortages around the world but also local to us um You know, we have the breadbasket of the United States is kind of drying up and we're covering it with fertilizers and all this other stuff, too. But I wonder if you can speak to whether the things that you are filming, learning, hearing and reading about in India, if there's any aspects of that that could be useful for, um, let's say, applicable in the United States, where we are also facing uh, explosive growth in cities, which is... You know, stress on the city. The infrastructure is not built out. Uh, you know, there's that, and then also the water and, and food issues are maybe a different degree. There's maybe a different degree of um, of need, but it's it's certainly here as well. So, is there other other things that you can apply here?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, the first the first thing that comes to my mind are all the things that you can't apply here. You know, because there's a lot of things that are non-transferable. Right. Right. So I want to mention a few of those things, just as as, as a little bit of the the basis. Um, the typical Indian village that has been in its location for a very long time, and the boundaries of that village's lands, the common land. There's a lot of lands that the people own in common. For one thing, mm-hmm. right. And oftentimes the boundaries of those villages are watershed boundaries. So, you know, the, the village lands might go to this ridge top and then over that ridge, the next village has that land. So, so oftentimes the village actually has a hydrologic unit, Mm -hmm. um, in, in its control where in the U S we have the grid of property ownership that is, you know, the, uh, Mark Lakeman calls it the Roman grid, but the, the, um, the land act of like 1787 or something like that the national land act that superimposes grid over a non-gridded landscape so we have the disadvantage here mm. where the property boundaries that and, and municipalities and and personal you know um personal property boundaries do not correspond to natural div- landscape divides like right. ridges rivers, mountaintops, right?
1: How insane I've never thought about that is maybe not logical, (laughs) you know,
0: this is actually, yeah, this is, this is the foundational flaw of our society Uh is that our property boundaries do not correspond to natural watershed boundaries Hmm. because it's very difficult. So, so in order to patch together the type of control over a watershed, that you might have in India that a village group that is communal by nature for mm-hmm. thousands of years, there's a lot of legacy and history of communalism there. Another thing I was, I was gonna say in India, you know, people are still alive today that like were alive during the salt march, during the Gandhian age when there was massive millions of people getting together to um kick out the British. So I mean there's a there's like a a recent very you know powerful history of communalism there. <clears throat> and a lot of the organizations that are working are you know consider on, on these watershed issues consider themselves Gandhian based organizations. So you know so India has <clears throat> the <clears throat> excuse me the property boundaries ownership they also have the spirit of communalism. So that's one thing that in the US Um, there are communities that have the spirit of volunteerism here and there are communities that have communalism and there are municipalities that have ownership over watershed areas and can actually work on a hydrologic unit Mm -hmm. but but in india that's it's more the rule with the village positioning versus here so that's one you know big difference here but how is it applicable in the u.s well, I think one thing is just seeing the biological reality that's happening there. Like, yes, we can restore watersheds, restore streams, stop soil erosion, uh, restore ecologies, and create food and water security with watershed scale um, restoration and, and management. We can see this is totally possible on the physical level. They have shown it is totally possible. Again, there's a different rainfall regime. There's monsoonal climate there. And also most of this is shallow wells, mm-hmm.
1: you
0: know, the, the, the surface water flow. It's different. Like, like where I live, I'm in a town, I'm on a well, my well is actually, I'm pulling water from about 18 feet down. I'm pull. I'm actually pulling surface water. Like I'm using surface water. But that is very rare in this day and age. Most of my neighbors, well, people are in the city water system, most people are pulling water from deep wells that are going below the surface water table through some layers of bedrock to lower reserves of water. So the water absorption that you do at the surface does not necessarily reflect your direct water supply when your well is 150 feet deep.
1: Right, right.
0: Or when I was, when I lived in Arizona, I had a property. My well was 405 feet deep and I was getting five gallons a minute. That's
1: insane. What are we doing (laughs) in Arizona?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, so that's another thing where the connection between the surface water runoff and the groundwater supply reserves, because their wells are mostly hand dug open wells there is a lot closer where here where we have deep drilled wells, you know, my aquifer, the aquifer at, you know, 200 feet below the surface where I am right here Mm. might be influenced by the coastal mountain range, you know, 30 miles away.
1: Right. But you can have a very local impact on your water supply if your well is 20 feet deep.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's, but that's less the case here. So, you know, that's one thing to consider, but on the watershed scale, most people still, their aquifer is fed by the watershed in which they are. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, I mean, not every, I mean, it's it's different everywhere. It's like geology is really diverse. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Like where I lived in Prescott, Arizona, the water supply was from an aquifer that was, the water was deposited there during the Pleistocene era. Huh. So it was fossil water that was being pulled out.
1: Probably not renewing. Non renewing. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, so that okay, that speaks to you can't take every solution from here and apply it here. You know, it's it's just not uh like you said, geology and every even from this point to 30 miles from here might be different. Um, but what well, okay, maybe another point you mentioned is a competition. Not sure if that would work. Maybe it would.
0: Well, I've got to say, like places in the US where I am seeing some stuff working like look at Brad Lancaster's example in Tucson okay. Arizona right <clears throat> and Brad's i mean i've i've been visiting you know Brad was one of my teachers from my permaculture design course in 1996 mm-hmm. right when i was 23 years old um and i have so i've been watching Brad's project develop for 25 years and i recently was there again doing some filming in the last couple of years so i i toured all over the neighborhood Saw how, you know, I saw trees that I saw 25 years ago, how big they are now. And I saw the scale at which they, uh, had created water harvesting structures, how large of an area, I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of micro water harvesting structures throughout, uh, Brad's neighborhood in Tucson, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, to the point, where I was like, "Wow, well, this this is the scale that you could actually influence the water table here." Right. Of course, Tucson, the water table has been so depleted; it's so far down. You know, Tucson's like sinking, yeah. right? That right. it's just there's not a surface water table. Like, it's he, you know, he's like, "Well, yeah, but the water table is just so depleted that we, you know, we can't measure it." Basically, right, right. they haven't like successfully, but but you know the communal spirit of that project is at a scale that you're like okay th- you know this is the scale that you could that that you would need to make a difference.
1: And you said micro projects. Has he simply managed to um, convince enough people that it's worth it? They're, you know, something we talked about. I think last time you and I talked that and. These places that you've seen in India, a lot of the land is communal land, whereas here, wow, there's a lot of private land, right? Yeah. And so is he able to convince his neighbors that this is worth doing? When I say neighbors, I mean like everybody yeah. in the area. Yeah.
0: Well, street side water harvesting basins are, is the main design feature. So what places where they, they they cut the curb. Okay. They cut a notch in the curb, they dug a basin, yep. they planted a little assemblage of mesquite and polyverity trees and barrel cacti, cacti and everything. And so they create these little micro catchment basins. And so you find these little catchment basins that are <clears throat> basically you know, one tree plantings um, all throughout the neighborhood, hundreds and hundreds of these little basins. So they, they created a pattern that is replicable both on public and private land. That's
1: awesome. I've wondered if I could do that. Can I go out and cut my curb? Is there an ordinance against it? Does it just depend on your own local codes?
0: Well, Brad, he wasn't sure about that. And so he so took he just the did it. better <laughs> to ask, uh, you know, every time you're like, wow, Brad, isn't that illegal? He's like, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> That's a good question. I never, I never found out. No, but eventually, you know, the first curb cuts were illegal and now the city does it. Nice. I mean, you're he created it, the examples it. illegally and now the city is uh you know now it's part of their codes and all that and they, they see the value in it but the first stone had to be cast yeah um below the law or above the law whatever
1: what else do you see i i mean okay so the first time we talked you mentioned you were going from you know you were in a landscaping company and doing kind of um private smaller scale projects and you've uh, broadened out to more looking at regional, uh, well, permaculture on a regional scale. And that's what we've been talking about in these massive uh, reshaping of hydrologies around specifically in India. Uh, Where do you see that happening in the United States? Or do you see it happening in the United States anywhere?
0: Well, places like the Central Valley Mm -hmm. is where I could see... Uh, a state sponsored operation i mean the central valley which is one of the you know the biggest agricultural bread baskets it's also a place that is really um susceptible to warming temperatures mm-hmm. and erratic rainfall i mean the droughts in california that we've seen you know in recent times are you know in, insane and then of right. course the fire danger so i could see like I could see a region-wide water harvesting project for the Central Valley, California, something like that in a state like California that has a lot of progressive-minded ecological thinking people. Um, and a lot to lose, right? And a lot to, exactly, a lot to lose, right? I mean, if the Central Valley goes to, well, I mean, we saw the Central Valley going dry, during the extended california drought right you know we saw pictures of dead orchards and you know it was bad
1: do you see city planners do you see politicians do you hear you know of people who do have decision making power over larger swaths of area talking about permaculture Or, or they don't have to call it permaculture but the kind of the concepts that you are looking at in, in other parts of the world?
0: Well, it's, it's seeping in, you know, and there are some examples of countries where like, like Rwanda, mm-hmm. right. I didn't know much about Rwanda till I talked to somebody recently and they were explaining the national strategy of Rwanda, like the amount of tree planting and their drive to become carbon neutral. And, you know, like there are, progressive governments out there that are actually taking this into stride and it's happening in, in little pockets. Um, <clears throat> you know, the U S is, is tricky. Um, you know, I, I mean, I know I've had a lot of people going through my permaculture classes and just people that I know that are in all sorts of different positions mm-hmm. that have this kind of information. Um, one person I interviewed on my podcast, Natalie Topa, Right. She works for the second largest refugee and aid organization on the planet, the Danish refugee council. Right. And they are integrating permaculture resilience training into like everything that they're doing for settling people and helping people to restore their livelihoods after they've been displaced, you know? So, I mean, it is seeping into, and, and then I just saw something, the UN, um, is putting some huge amount of money towards uh restoring degraded ecosystems right marginal degraded ecosystems and realizing like that that is the the place where you know we can make the greatest amount of change both global climate wise local economy ecology i mean so you know i think this is seeping it's 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 not always evident because water just seeping. It's not like a flood, but it's right. like slowly seeping in. I mean that's how it is at least what I experience in my world. Right. Um you know and, and I guess you know some of it I can just I can just only hope that it's just seeping in more than I can even perceive. Right. You know, because at the point where humans actually decide that we need to fix things on a mass scale, you know, we need to have the examples waiting for us and the answers to, you know, how to pull this off.
1: I'd imagine it is, like you said, 45,000 people in your course, and that's just your course. I mean, there's, you know, I look up uh, permaculture courses from time to time. They're, they're all over the place. Almost every major city has a few instructors. So I would bet that, that there are more people than either of us imagine that do have an interest in and probably have a working knowledge of permaculture. But for those who don't, and I'm kind of, I'm going to try to wrap this up for those folks listening or watching who don't have uh, much, much exposure. And I know we've, you've thrown out a, a whole lot of resources and people to look up here. You mentioned Brad Lancaster and Toby Hemingway and, and a, a lot of other names where would you propose somebody start if they thought they listen to this and they're like, that sounds cool. I'm interested. Where do you, where do they go? Where, what do you, what do you tell people to, to look at?
0: Well, first off you could just, you could check out my YouTube channel and I have my oh. whole, I have my <laughs> whole playlist, Andrew Millicent. You know, I have my whole playlist of, of the whole course, the MOOC that we did. Um, plus other osu videos so i have like probably you know a playlist of like 50 or 60 just basic instructional videos just lay out the permaculture design system
1: those are free to everybody on youtube
0: free to everybody on youtube perfect yeah um and a lot i actually have a lot some of them are translated into multiple languages and stuff like that if you're um we got spanish and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, that's one where I could just I mean I can vouch for my own sources, right? right Saying, well, right. It's, this is the best I could explain it. So, yeah. uh and then there's a lot of other good stuff on YouTube. I mean, I I I like watching Jeff Lawton's videos. He's got a lot um G E O okay. F F L A W T O N, Jeff mm-hmm. Lawton on his his YouTube channel. He's got a lot of great um explanatory permaculture videos. Um, there's a lot of great books out there. Right. There's Gaius Garden, which I've already mentioned, Toby Hemingway's great book. Bill Mollison's got an introduction to permaculture. Uh, and the Permaculture Designer's Manual is more of this thick black book that's, you know, the Bible. 500 pages or something like that. The Bible, yeah. right? Um, the, the, the book that I use for my courses is Practical Permaculture for Home and Landscape by Jesse Bloom. Okay. And Dave Bainline, and that's, it's a great book, really nicely illustrated, really great explanatory one. Um, I did see
1: that David Holmgren came out with retro suburbia kind of yeah. permaculture yeah. for the suburbs, which I thought is yeah. super, super cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so many, like we could, we could spend an hour listing all the great permaculture books out there for sure. Um,
1: but that's a good place to start. Basically, look start. up Andrew Millicent on YouTube.
0: <laughs> yeah, look up Andrew Millicent on YouTube. Also, we have an online permaculture design course. Right. Right? You could take uh, through Oregon State University for non-credit. Anybody can take that. So, if yeah, basically, if you just look up, like, permaculture design course, Oregon State University, you will come up with it.
1: Perfect. That's yeah. perfect. I think that's a good place to to end this. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And um, yeah, this has been enlightening for me and I hope for many others too.
0: Awesome. You're so welcome, Andrew. And I appreciate you reaching out to do this and uh, I look forward to talking again. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.